this is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. Our taping is made possible with the support of Raider, a hands-on IT service provider that integrates all of your needs for advanced technical support, effective communication options, and cybersecurity. Raider's motto is, you just want it to work. We understand. Please visit RaiderSolutions.com for more information. The generosity of Oxner Lafayette General also makes this podcast possible. As Acadiana's largest regional health system, including two teaching hospitals and the region's only level two trauma center with more than 5,500 employees, Oxner Lafayette General strives to put patients first and make caring their top priority. In continuous efforts to reach more patients, Oxner Lafayette General provides services throughout Acadiana and facilitates telemedicine throughout the state, making healthcare more accessible for everyone. For more information, visit OxnerLG.org. We're proud to welcome our newest sponsor, Home Bank, where you'll not only find trusted financial advisors, but neighbors who will help you stay ahead of identity thieves. Home Bank encourages you to limit the use of paper checks, which contain your personal or business information, along with your bank account number. When possible, choose to pay with cash, debit, or credit cards, or with your phone's mobile wallet. Learn more at home24bank.com. Herb Schilling is our guest today. Herb is being honored at the UL Lafayette Alumni Association's 25th Annual Spring Gala on March 26, 2022. His generosity and dedication to the university and the Alumni Association are truly worthy of this recognition. Herb graduated in 1972 with a degree in business management from USL. He was a four-year letterman on the USL golf team and a member of SAE fraternity. Following his father's death in 1981, Herb assumed leadership of Schilling Distributing, which he has grown to heights never imagined, now distributing a vast array of beers as well as fine wines. We have a lot to talk about today. Herb does much more than what people know about with Schilling Distributing. And Herb, I'm honored to welcome you here today, um, and congratulations on being honored by UL Lafayette. It's a pleasure being with you. Yeah, we got to be friends through Upper Lafayette Economic Development. And I honestly, at that time, had no idea about the wide array of businesses that you've gotten involved in, your philanthropic work, but also your family's connection to the university. This is a long time building. The the university has been part of my life from birth. Uh, My mother was a professor at the university in 1949 when I was born, and we resided one block away from the university on Johnson Street. And my mother would walk to work every day, and my first uh, schooling was at um, Hamilton Training School, which was a laboratory school for the university back then, and to train teachers. it's for, you know funny that now when you read about the university contemplating open a lab school. Well, we did it a long time ago. Successfully. Successfully. That's all yes. I've heard. Yeah. Uh, we had um, two classes of every grade, all the way up to the eighth grade, and they taught two different ways, and they would monitor, you know, the progress of the students and and which method in whatever way they checked it worked best. Mm -hmm. And we went back for our 15th reunion and toured the school. A lot of our classmates, we asked, do y'all have any records to verify which side did better? (laughs) They they had no records. So I, I would walk to Hamilton Elementary School from my house through the campus every day, you know, weather permitting, to, to go to school and to return to school. I mean, to return home, and I would go up Martin Hall and visit my mother on the third floor, and that's not the Martin Hall that you know today. You know, the Martin Hall that I'm talking about has been, is where the parking lot is, where the new Martin Hall is. Okay. And the steps, there were no handicap elevators, no nothing. The steps were very right. steep and that's very That's a lot worn. for a young man to a young boy. Huh? Well, you're carrying your books, <laughs> and, and, uh, but we had some unique people, and we're, we remain friends, but... Um, 
in the presentation at the alumni um, night, I'm going to tell everybody that I received my first degree from SLI in 1954. We'll find out real quick if anybody's paying attention because that right. should add up. That shouldn't <laughs> add up. No, but that, I got a degree from nursery school that reads SLI. Oh, my goodness. Do you have a photo of that uh, I have a young photo. person? Oh, I bet that's precious. I have a photo of the graduating oh. um, class, too, that, mm -hmm. I, that I had. And I'm... And the friendships that we cultivated at that school, like I said, remain today. I've only heard wonderful things about that school, and I don't know what happened through the years, but you did stay close. I mean, everybody grew up here, and it was it just, the, the cream of the crop. The of, university just decided yeah. that they didn't want to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, they built those dormitories behind it. Then they built um, Angele Hall. We used to have the whole block. That was our playground. That's I mean, we had the whole block to ourselves. We had baseball. Mm -hmm. We had soccer. We, we, we didn't have soccer. We had kickball. Um, you know, we had a wonderful life. But some of my classmates of, that became very, very successful, um, Bishop Glenn Provost was a fellow classmate for wow. all eight years. Right. Um, judge Johnny DeGravel, U.S. District Judge in Baton Rouge, mm -hmm. him and his brother Charlie, um, you know, kindergarten through eighth grade. Right. What and did your mom teach? Like, what, what she would she She was teach in you? secretarial science. My, okay. My mother graduated from the university in 1932 at age, SLI, at age 19. And she got a master's in 35 from LSU. And then she went to Columbia in 54. And I'm not quite sure the exact name of that degree mm -hmm. that she obtained. But my mother was a professional teacher. I mean, right. she taught for the oh, love God. of teaching. Mm -hmm. And my wife, Renee, and I go out to dinner. We meet people, especially when we first got married 25 years ago. We're, oh, your mother taught me. And Renee, look, it's, you're about the 100th person. She goes, <laughs> how many people did your mother teach? And, and I said, well, you know, she taught a lot of years. And, and um so I don't know the number. And my mother had the ability not to only remember you were in our class, where you sat. Really? Yes. She loved what she did. And then we had one lady, she told her day, she said, I went to every class Ms. Schilling taught that semester. And my mother said she was very strict. Huh? She said, well, she was, but I, I didn't go because of that. I wanted to see what she would wear. And she wore something different every day. And her eyeglasses matched the outfit no. that she had. <laughs> and she said, I, I just couldn't believe it. I had to keep going. To, and That's a woman after my own heart. <laughs> I like that. Matchy, matchy. So um, when did you take up golf? I mean, did you start in high school? I know that you, by the time you I, got to UL or to USL, it was... I was a baseball player and okay. basketball player. Um Dr. George Cousin and I were classmates at Hamilton and, mm -hmm. and through high school, but we played basketball and baseball together. And at Hamilton, you know, we won the city titles in both leagues, and we beat a little pitcher by the name of Ron Guidry that became really? Louisiana Lightning. Yeah. And, um, and George went on to um, play football in mm -hmm. college. Mm -hmm. But in the when I was 11 years old, my across-the-street neighbor, a fellow USL graduate, Mark Tolson, Walked across the street, and he was two years older than me. And he said, you want to go play golf tomorrow? I never played golf in my life. He said, well, let's go play golf. So my father came home that night. I said, can I go play golf tomorrow? He said, he said you don't know how to play golf. I said, I don't know, but I don't have anything else to do. <laughs> he said, well, who's going to bring you? I said, Mr. Tolson, you know, is going to bring us. That's fine with me. Which golf course did he take well, you to? Well, Municipal Golf Course. That, that, the, the one right mm -hmm. there um, on Mud Avenue. It's beautiful. And um, so Mark and I went there. We had, I had a little wooden clubs that my father had, you know, that were so outdated it was unbelievable. And there's no practice range at the Municipal Golf Course. So you, know, you take out. a few swings, uh -huh. you could go putt a few, <laughs> and they got all these people looking at you, you got to, 
tee it up and get going. So Mark said, we got to keep walking past. we got to get out their way. <laughs> so it, it was very nerve-wracking to say the first hole, first shot with 10, 12 people looking at you. And, and, right. and so I hit a few balls, I hit a few balls, got to the green. But the second hole used to have a little lake. But it, and when I was 11 years old in my first day of golf, it looked like the Pacific Ocean. And Mark said, you go on the other side and hit. I said, well, where are you hitting from, Mark? He said, well, I'm going to hit from right here on the tee box. I said, huh. well, I said I'm going to hit here too then. Really? At 11? And I, and I got it over that lake. If that ball would have gone in the lake, I probably would have never played golf again. <laughs> but isn't that something that he was encouraging you, you know, not pushing you? That was a good yeah, and Mark, and Mark and I remain friends to this day, and um, Mark um, has bought his tickets to attend the gala, and yeah. he'll be there. Did you go home that day and tell your dad, I, I want to play golf? Did you know, like after that first well, experience, that that was uh, a good fit? Well, I, I continued playing baseball and basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, basketball, even in the high school, till my knees gave out. But my baseball card coach, Clyde Wolf came up to me and said, um, I needed to make a decision, golf or baseball. I said, well, coach, I pitched a one-hitter last night. I got the only two hits for our team. We lost. What else would you like me to do? He said, Herbie, you got a future in this game, but you need to dedicate yourself. I said, I play golf in the morning, I'm home, I'm here at practice every day, I play first base, I pitch, I play every game. And he was very demanding, and I put my glove on my bike, and I never played baseball again, and my father never watched me play golf. Really? My father was a professional baseball player. That's how we got to Lafayette. Well, that's right, yeah. That's like another podcast. I want to yes. get you on to talk about the history of the Evangeline League and yes. all that. But So that was tough. Well, it was a decision I had... Yeah. We got forced in, and Clyde became friends of mine. We ended up playing <laughs> softball together, and he, he ended up playing golf. And uh, he, one day we were having a beer after a softball game, and he said, Herbie, the worst mistake I ever made was making you make a decision at that time. Yeah, that was unfair. And I yeah. said, it's all worked out, Clyde. It all did work all out. Water under the bridge. Yeah. So I've got a question about your dad. Um, I know you as a man who can make up your mind and man of principle. What was your dad like? My dad was um, a good businessman, a promoter, and Judge Kali Saloon, who died at age 99. Two years ago, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Was my father's scorekeeper at age 17. And Judge Saloon would come out to Oakborn and he would be hitting balls next to me on the range. He'd be on the putting ring. And he would tell me stories about my father and his baseball days. So everything that I'd know about my father came from Judge Saloon. Isn't that something? And my father was a Pretty hard those, you know. He, was he? He, um, he said, Judge Saloon said, people came to the ballpark. Your father would marry people. He would always have a promotion going, and the ballpark was packed every day. But the main reason they came, they knew your father was probably going to be in a fight that day. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, my father um, was tough as nails. Mm-hmm. And he got drafted at age 37 in the military. World War II, and at age 39, won the heavyweight boxing ground of the Pacific. I didn't know that. Yes. So. Um, wow. I knew he so was he, heavily he, involved he, with yeah. baseball before he, he left. Yeah. He, he, he was a brawler. Yeah. So he came back after World War II, and things had changed in baseball, in right? Baseball, in baseball, yes. The, um, uh, Branch Rickey had formed the minor league system as yeah. you know it today, and you couldn't own the baseball players and, and develop the baseball players. And that's what he enjoyed doing, mm-hmm. was finding talent, making the talent better. Then the big league teams promote him to there, you know. And it was not, it, of course it was about money, but he enjoyed seeing the progress of the players. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't gonna just have the concession stands and sell, you know, so that wasn't his cup of tea. Yeah. 
didn't see baseball back then. You know, that was the entertainment. You had no TV. In, you know, when he was here in the late 20s, right. you know, people would flock to that ballpark for entertainment. And from what I understand, um, there were very few big, you know, like the big cities had a few big you, you cities. Had about had, eight, you had about eight teams. Had the major leagues. So across America, they had leagues like your dad, you know, where locals got to know the ball players, and it was really a family outing that everybody could attend and have fun. That's right. He came down here because this was a hotbed for baseball. He mm-hmm. played ball in Minnesota. I was reading an article as I went through scrapbooks researching for this gala, which had no pertinence to the USL, but, you know, he played across the United States mm-hmm. uh, and before he got here to own a team and, yeah. and play on a team. He played third base. My uncle played first base. My uncle Charles made it to the big leagues, played for the New York Yankees. That's awesome. Um, but yeah. he was behind Lou Gehrig, so Lou Gehrig never missed a game. He don't get much playing time. <laughs> God. Well, your dad died young. For, My I mean, father died of age 74 of cancer. Never smoked a day in his life. Um, and he got prostate cancer and, and withered away to nothing. And, and that was in 1981. Yeah. So you were a very young man, and you stepped in, assumed well, leadership. Well, i in the business, you know, mm-hmm. um, being the only child. My father didn't want me to be in the beer business, and, and, um, and the only reason I wanted to be in the beer business was our competitor, Slitch Beer, was kicking our rear, and I didn't like the way they ran the business, and... Uh, we became rivals, and I wasn't going to leave losing. Right, and you didn't. I'd like to pause and reflect back on an interview we did with Charlie Goodson, the founder of Charlie G's and partner with Southern Hospitality Kitchens, which owns many popular restaurants locally. Charlie shares his experiences starting back in the 1970s when he opened Judge Roy Bean's Saloon with Earl A. Bear in what is now Cafe Vermilionville. You can hear Charlie's interview at discoverlafayette.net along with about 250 others. This moment is made possible by FACET, which has offered career transition services for 40 years. They work to ensure that your work and personal life are integrated so that you and your family can be happy and you can live out the passion of your life. FACET is there to help you achieve that dream. Visit facetgroup.com for more information. We people, your success. And now the moment. And so uh, you were here in 67. Mm-hmm. I know just five years later, you were a partner with Earl Abear, from right. what I understand. And I knew him as an artist. Right. I didn't know the history of Judge Roy Beans. How did that come about? Uh, I was working for Preston Guidry at the time at Peach, the original Peach, which was a, more of a college hangout. That wasn't on, on nothing on was General done. Muton. Yeah, it, it wasn't where the on Bulldog is now. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Earl was a good friend of Preston's. They were uh, high school uh, buddies, and Earl would come in after they would close the restaurant, and and we got we became real good friends mm-hmm. there. And then I went to work for him at the Beef and Ale restaurant as oh, a waiter. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I was waiting tables for Earl at the Beef and Ale, and I told him I wanted to open my own place. Mm-hmm. And so on our days off, we would drive around looking at locations. Were you saving as you were working? Did you no, have it? You, no. Just, I want to do this. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to do this. In those days, it wasn't a, it wasn't a factor of money, unbelievably. It, you did not have to have a lot of money to open a business. Whereas today, that's the first consideration. Where am I going to get the money? Mm-hmm. To open Judge Roy Beans, Earl had $2,000 because he was in the business. He had a little money coming in. Which was a lot. I borrowed $2,000. My daddy co-signed for me. I was going to say, you went to the bank. You had to have a co-signer. Guaranteed bank in those days. Mm -hmm. And so for $4,000, we opened a business. You know, it it takes hundreds of thousands to do it today. Right. uh, In most cases. Uh But in those days, uh, we did all the work ourselves, all the painting, all the carpentry. Welcome back to Discover Lafayette with Herb Schilling, who's being honored on March 26, 2022, by UL Lafayette's Alumni Association. So, Herb, as a young man, you assumed a big role in your family's company. And I'm assuming being in the beer business, you were involved with a lot of goings-on with USL and other other uh, organizations. Well, before we talk about 
me being in the business. Let's go back to being in college and being right. part of Judge Roy Beans. And, okay, you remember that. Oh, yes. George, <laughs> George, Judge Roy Beans was right there um, at Cafe Familiavillias. But um, and I remember Charlie from college. But when we were in college at USL, Playboy Magazine ranked us the number one party school in America. Was that deserved? Yes. And let me tell you how hard it is <laughs> to obtain a college degree and simultaneously ensure we don't lose our ranking as the number one party school. <laughs> oh, and my goodness. the keg, um, owned by Kenneth Gilbo, mm-hmm. was the largest draft account in America for Anheuser-Busch. Oh. In America. And on Fridays and Saturdays, we would deliver beer at 12 noon, 6 p.m., and 12 midnight. So beloved clients. <laughs> they kept you going, huh? <laughs> well, just that one place. I know, I know, I hear you. And um, the, it, it, the life that we led in college was so much fun, so much fun. And a learning experience just being there. And President Savoy worked for me for four years. Um, you know, I'd love to hear some of those stories someday. You probably can't T- repeat T- them Joyce all. T. swore me to <laughs> secrecy. Because I know I'm thinking he and Joey Durrell knew each other way back, too, and you've known them, and there's got to be some great stories. That... Joy, Joey's a baby. <laughs> I'll, I'll let um, President Savoy tell you about his fraternity brother, Jerome DiMaggio. Okay, yeah. Let, let T. Joe share those stories with right. you. Because Jerome was my bud man, and he's legendary. I would he was come, Judge DiMaggio's son, one yeah. of Judge's sons. Right. I would come visit Lafayette. I was from Baton Rouge, but when I was at LSU, we'd come visit, and I just couldn't get over Lafayette. I mean, it was party city, but yet a hotbed of entrepreneurs. Like, people were kicking it, but they knew how to have a good time. So you were definitely in the right business. My wife, Renee, like you, is a graduate of LSU. In 69, she came here for summer school, and she wanted to— come to USL, but her credits wouldn't transfer, so she didn't go. Right. Maybe but she that's a good the, thing. <laughs> she, she felt the same way you did. This is fun. It was fun. It was. I was glad to move here. It was just always fun. So where do you want to begin about UL and, and your involvement? Um, well, I know you have a lot you want to share. But the university, again, has been part of my life forever. You know, born into it, elementary school, college, so I went to SLI, graduated from USL, and I support the University of Louisiana. Seen it all. And, and the university is a asset to this community that has helped us survive the ups and downs of the oil industry. And now is the backbone of this community, um, and deservedly so. And the success of this university means the success of this town. The success of this town means the success of my business. So that's a simple equation. Right. I was surprised. Um, One of the good things about this podcast is getting to know more about our history here. And UL, from the early days, was one of the top engineering schools, you know, along with MIT. And I had no idea some of the early professors, what they did to help engineers, and computer sciences in particular, to get their start here. It's amazing. We were the top computer school um, almost in the nation. You know, your university pulled the rug out from under us. But, you know, that can go back and forth through time. uh, You know, if they would have just let us be the shining star, they didn't have to be everything. Mm -hmm. And shame on us for allowing it to happen. But uh, I graduated in management, and Dr. Bernard Biavidu and Dr. Rex Hauser, I can assure you, are the foundation for my success. They were Harvard-educated. They were using the Harvard case study method back in the 60s and 70s when I was in school. We were the only university using that in the South. And, and that education that Dr. Biavidu provided 
Ms. Schwab right. here today? I have to tell you, I feel like I was stalking you on, on the internet. I looked up, I went to the Secretary of State's website to look up Herbert Schilling to see the businesses you were involved in, and it's two pages. Is it like 34, at least 34 different corporations um, well, or, or entities that you've, you know, you're involved in so many things? Up. Well, you know, in the beer industry, we experienced prohibition. And prohibition shut down all beer for 13 years. And so one thing Dr. Avenue always said was, you know, have balance in your life. Mm -hmm. Don't have everything in one pocket because if that pocket rip, all the marbles come out, you lose everything. Right. So, you know, when the opportunity knocked, I would listen and, and I would fortunately pick mostly good investments. And more importantly, I would pick good partners and good people to work mm. with. I know you have. So you've, you sell rice also. Um, I'm part of Supreme Rice Mill. Uh, with Bobby Hanks as our managing partner. That, that was a story in and of itself. Um, J.B. Broussard Rice Mill in Mermintal is a shuttered rice mill that is closed. J.B. had died. Um, Poor estate planning, got stiffed by a buyer in Miami, and, and the poor family was struggling. And the Broussard family had supported my father in Budweiser beer. So when I was approached by Alan Bear and Mike Michaud, Mike's wife was part of the Broussards. Um, I see. I said, I would do it for the Broussard family. I brought in Kenny Hicks, um, mm -hmm. my attorney. And we got into business with Bobby Hanks' father, Butch, who was a USL graduate. And we were going to just get the Broussard mill going and give it back to the Broussards. Two, three years later, Keith Broussard dies. Butch, Bobby's father, dies. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at the mirror and going, okay, yeah. what are we going to do here? Because we don't know the rice business at all. And Bobby said, can I take my father's inheritance and become a partner with y'all? And Bobby's young and no rice experience, you know. And thankfully I said yes, and Bobby has done a marvelous mm -hmm. task of leading his company to phenomenal growth. And um, That's amazing. And we got bought out by a partner in um, Sacramento, and we still own a minority, but Bobby is the managing part of the big billion-dollar company now. Right. You also got into um, truck sales. International and Trucks of Acadiana, mm -hmm. only because um, my fleet is made of international trucks, and um, the dealer back then, Lingo um, International, was on the verge of bankruptcy, and I couldn't get parts for my trucks. So... My son Scott suggested we buy that and, and be able to service our trucks and, and um, make it a profit center. So we got into that business and um, it's done well. We now we now own truck dealerships in Lake Charles, Lafayette, Baton Rouge, Slidell, Harahan, and we had one in Homer, but it got wiped up uh, wiped out by Ida. So right now we don't have a location there. Mm -hmm. You also um, founded the Recycling Foundation, which provided curbside recycling for City of Lafayette residents, way ahead of the time for that. And that was due to the beer business. Um, litter was a big topic then, as it is now, and deposit legislation was being tried in various states as the solution. <laughs> so you would buy a bottle of beer, a can of beer, and you would have a nickel, dime, whatever state would place on it, on top of the purchase price, but you would get that back if you brought it back to the store. Well, what happens then is you buy the beer, you pay an extra dollar twenty, you bring it back, store now has to have a location to keep empties, which smell and stink. Then I have to have a truck that picks up empties. Then I have to have a warehouse to store the empties. And then I got to ship it. 
So the price of the product would increase very rapidly. So the positive legislation scared me to death. And recycling, you know, voluntarily would be the best solution. So the city was looking at going to recycling and they were going to charge the residents for recycling. And I said, well, people are going to resent recycling just because they have to pay now. We've we got to make this feel good. And if, mm-hmm. So Larry Smith, with, um, Katie Annabelle, and, and I parted up and because his industry was going to be affected just like mine. We parted up and we started the Recycling Foundation and we did the recycling free of charge to the residents and we were able to sell the recyclables and just about break even. We, we, we have to supplement a little bit. But the task there is to keep the recyclables clean. You know, you recycle paper, you can't have it mixed in with liquids. Mm-hmm. So we had containers and we had separate containers on the truck and, and we did it right. And that's how I met Kenny Hicks. Um, oh. Kenny Hicks was an t- attorney for Hank Perrette and he said he had an attorney friend that wanted to be, wanted to leave practice of law and wanted to work in business. He, he really wanted to be part of the Recycling Foundation. I said, Kitty, we're a nonprofit corporation, truly a nonprofit corporation. I mean, we make nothing. And he said, well, this gentleman wants to do this. I said, okay. So he came on board. What about, a catch. Huh? About, oh, not, not Kitty. One of his partners wanted to do oh, this. Oh, 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 I see. And so his partner comes on board huh. and, and works a little bit and, and you know, say two months in, he goes, I can't do this. I mean, because you, I mean, you work in a nonprofit. Nonprofit, <laughs> you work in hard, you work in with inmates, you work in, because um, we had the sheriff's department coming in, they were recycling, separating the aluminum in the bottles. And so Kenny comes back in my office. He said, I'm so embarrassed. He said, I'll come to work for you. I said, Kenny, a lawyer doesn't need to do this. He said, I want to do it. You know, I need to do something besides being in office reading. And, you know, we had a lifelong friendship from there. And it became business partners. I know you miss him. Yeah. Wonderful guy. Deeply. Yeah, I know. He loved you. I also want to bring up, I have a question about um, Pelican Park. I don't know if a lot of people realize you were the force behind that. Pelican Park. And Karen uh, Crow. And Karen Crow was the first artificial turf facility in, in the South, or maybe anywhere as far as um, softball. And I built that. I got carried away. I got, uh, it didn't need to be artificial turf. It didn't need to be three-story, but... <laughs> It was, and it was, the fi- it was finest in, yeah, in America. Finest, we yeah. had teams from all over the country fly in on private jets to play in the, um, these world tournaments that we had. And um, But the real reason was softball players really like to drink beer. The weekend uh-huh. softball players. The, the There's evenings, a common thread to all uh, these endorsements. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> right hand helps the left hand. Mm-hmm. And... So I do, you know, if we have a nice softball facility, we would have a... It'd be like the increase. keg. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it was, you know, because um, most of the time on the weekend tournaments when we didn't have the world tournament, most of the teams would get eliminated, so they only wrote to success was to win the beer drinking trophy. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like fun, and it's a beautiful park. Yes, yes, it, yeah. it was. And we built a, a stage out there. We started having Fourth of Julys because mm-hmm. they had no Fourth of July celebrations back then, and mm-hmm. um, we we had fun in that business. And it's, I mean, maintained itself as a. Does the city of Karen Crow? Yes, the city of Karen Crow, and, and I drove by there. It's beautiful about still. Eight months ago, and they've maintained it yeah. and they've expanded it. So I'm very proud of it. For people that haven't been, not only can you play wonderful softball still, but there's a walking path. They have the Macready Show. Wednesday night shows during the spring and summer, I guess with COVID, all that's coming back. But it is a real investment in that community, in a very small community at that time. But you attracted the people in. Yes. And you look at the communities of Bruce Hardy, Youngsville, and what they've expanded upon that same concept. Exactly. 
Right. And I also want to get in, you were um, a driving force behind the Louisiana Open. Yes. Um, 1980, um, the Louisiana Open was being discussed between Lionel Hebert, Charlie Dugas, Luca Barbato, the, the pros, you know, um, Lionel was a PGA pro, won the um, PGA tournament, um, and his brother Jay did, the only brothers in the history mm-hmm. of professional golf to do that, from Lafayette, Louisiana, that played the same golf course that I started my career at age 11, and the golf course is now named after them. But uh, they, they had the tournament, and all it was was local pros from the clubs get to play for a little pot, and then amateurs would play, and, and, they, and the amateurs were not of the caliber to compete, so they had flights, like the fifth or sixth flight, and people were shooting 100. <laughs> you know, I'm going, this, this isn't really what I would envision. So I... The following year, I said, look, I'll take this over, and I'll start the Michelob Louisiana Open. And we had tournaments. And then in 85, I formed um, a corporation, Louisiana Open Inc., and we turned it into where it was open to any golfer in America that was a pro. And, and we had some very good golfers come through here as an independent tournament, Jeff Maggot, who's on the PGA Tour, the senior tour now, won the tournament at Vosheng Golf Course in South Lafayette, carrying his bag. He played for Texas A&M, and you know, and that that was his start of playing right here and played in the tournament. And then in 1991, uh, the PGA Tour started the Ben Hogan Tour, which was sponsored by Ben Hogan and Ben Hogan Company. And he wanted to have a chance for golfers to play, but also drive from tournament to tournament and partner up and share cars and, and right. experience the life that he experienced growing up in a, as a pro golfer. So Mike Shea, my fellow teammate from the University of USL, um, had a brief pro career and gave it up and became head rules official for the PGA Tour. So Mike is working for the PGA Tour, and he's at every tournament you would see on TV with the brim hat making the final rulings. I called Mike, and I said, Mike, I said, um, I'd like to be part of the Ben Hogan Tour. He said, Herb, I, I know about it. He said, but I don't have any connections, but I know the guy that is in charge. I'll give you his number. I'll tell him, expect a call from you. So... Not his name. I can't if I can remember it. I shared it, but I. And hopefully, Mike will be at the gala too. Yeah, yeah. But I called the PJ headquarters, introduced myself, told him what I do. He said, "Well, Mr. Shelley, I really appreciate your interest, but he said we want all new venues. We don't want." You know, good or bad reputations, we're not going to judge. Mm-hmm. We, we, we're going with all new venues. So the first Ben Hogan tour in Louisiana was held at Country Club of Louisiana, just a brand new facility in um, Baton Rouge. So I went down there to try to qualify as a golfer, shot 74, didn't make it. But I'm looking at the clubhouse of Country Club of Louisiana, I'm looking at the Jack Nicholas golf course, I'm going, we don't have a chance. So I'm sitting in my office, and it's October 92, uh, October 91. And I get a, my receptionist buzzes me, Mr. Schilling, so-and-so with the PGA Tour, I'd like to talk to you. So I pick up the phone, it's the same gentleman that I talked mm-hmm. to that told me he wanted tournaments of all new right. venues. He um, reintroduces himself to me. He said, Mr. Schilling, you still interested in holding a tournament? I said, look, Louisiana is not big enough for a tournament in Lafayette, a tournament in um, Baton Rouge, and a tournament in New Orleans. I said, you know, we, we just don't have the population and the financial wherewithal to, to pull this off. So, yes, I'm interested, but, you know, realistically, I, I can't even consider 
He said, well, we, we're replacing the Baton Rouge tournament. And I said, well, I went to the Baton Rouge tournament, A, as a qualifier, and B, as a spectator. I said, pretty impressive facility, in my opinion. He said, well, it is. a beautiful golf course, beautiful clubhouse. He said, but what we found out in our first year of existence is we need people that know how to run a golf tournament. He said, I've, I've researched your history, and you've taken steady steps toward having a very good tournament every year and know what you're doing. So would you be interested in hosting a tournament in March? This is October. In March? Oh, my gosh. March. And, you know, so six months. I said, well, uh, yeah. I said, but let me digest this. And he said, oh. And he said, we can't have it at the club you have. You know, at the Vosheng Golf Course, we'd like for you to have it at um, one of your country clubs. I said, well, I belong to Oak Barn Country Club, but, you know, that is that is not a feasible location to host a tournament anymore because it's become residential around there. There's no parking. There's no nothing. Um, he said, well, you can do remote parking. He said, what about that Le Triumph Golf Club? I said, brand well, new, it's, yeah. Well, it's brand new, but it's bankrupt. Right, I remember that. It was owned by the oh, Chinese. By, by, by the J- Japanese or Chinese. Chinese, yeah. And our Japanese, but... Um, so I called the manager of, of Le Triumph, Chuck Newsom and Tom Cox. Tom Cox has yeah, golfballs.com golf yeah. now. So they said, we're, we're, we're scheduled a meeting with the Chinese. So I forgot Chuck Newsom was involved in that. <laughs> so I have to go meet with the Chinese yeah. who don't speak English. But they know golf, huh? Don't speak English and I don't speak Chinese. So... And I don't I'm think Chuck look, and Tom I, did either. No, no, I can assure you they didn't. <laughs> so I'm looking at this interpreter going, he, he either going to make or break my day. <laughs> and rob you blind. Yeah. Uh, and so I befriended him and I, you know, had a small conversation and I tried to feel good about him. And I did, you know. And, and so one month negotiation, they said, okay, we'll do it. And um, I got to give Chuck and Tom credit, you know, Selling them on, look, you know, once we are part of this, you know, luxury on part of the PGA Tour, uh, help us sell memberships. And here we are now, still part of the PGA Tour. And I do have to say, from my readings, um, since 1986, originally, more than $4 million has been raised, right, for some of your work. It's gone to local charities such as Boys and Girls Club, Hospice of Acadiana, Children's Museum. Hearts of Hope, Louisiana Casa, and I'm sure others, but that's incredible. I mean, just uh, one I'm, of I'm your very, endeavors. I'm very, I'm very, very proud of where that tournament went. You mm-hmm. know, proud of the leadership down with Harry Potter and Danny Jones, you know, that they've been able to continue. I appreciate the Chittimacha Indian tribe supporting it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we should take a lot of pride in it because this Corn Ferry Tour down is the name of it. It is the only way a player can get on the PGA Tour. There's no more qualifying for nine days and going to the PGA Tour. You qualify to go to the Corn Ferry Tour, you perform for a year on the Corn Ferry Tour, the top 25 go to the PGA Tour. Oh, so you have to participate. You have to go through that. So the top young golfers come through Lafayette, Louisiana, and and you get to walk side by side with them. That's great, yeah. The last time I played in the tournament, um, played with Harry Higgs, who's become a celebrity on the PGA Tour, even though he hasn't won anything, but just a big, fun, jovial guy. I should have Budweiser sponsor him because he, right. he, he likes his beer. <laughs> At 32 degrees? <laughs> yes. Do I have that right? You do. For people that don't know Herb well, I mean, once you get to know Herb, you know how to drink beer. Yes. And it's got to be at the right temperature, right? Well, we got the aluminum bottles mm-hmm. um, that <laughs> won't freeze to where we can bring it down below freezing to 29 degrees. Oh. But it's only because of the shells that we have in that cooler. And um, when people grab that beer, they go, oh. Yeah, it's perfect. So um, I want to talk about the upcoming gala. And, and, and as we do, I do want to say that 
I'm really proud of the work we did for Upper Lafayette Economic Development Foundation. Well, I, I worked with you for 10 years, and your heart was always in seeing the development of what we're seeing now. You well, know? Let, let, let me remind you on how we got together. I remember. <laughs> you, you, you came to my office soliciting my support as you ran for state representative. Which I did not get. <laughs> and, and your passion to, for the community and to help the community impressed me. Thank you. And, uh, and because of that, I uh, solicited your assistance with Upper Lafayette, yeah. and we've worked together for 10 years. We and, did. And, and we I were always, very successful. I always loved it, too, because I had lived north of Upper Lafayette. I lived in St. Landry Parish, and everything we did was right there in Karen Crow, North Lafayette. And I always saw the beauty and the potential, which now people are realizing more and more each day. So congratulations the, the value, on the that. The value of I-10 and I-49 intersection is untapped mm -hmm. because of no frontage roads. And that could be an economic driver that makes all of Acadiana prosper. And the connector through Lafayette to New Orleans will make Iberia Parish, St. Martin Parish, all St. Mary all prosper because it will take traffic out of Baton Rouge and direct it to New Orleans that way. Oh, that'd be a godsend. Amen I can't wait there. for that. I know I've worked on that for years too, but I'll believe it when I see it, but I know it's going to happen. I don't know when it's going to happen, but it'll it'll happen someday. Well, Herb, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, when you found out you were going to be honored, um, how did you feel about UL, you know, calling you up to honor you? I was very humbled. You know, totally unexpected. But it was a good business decision on their part <laughs> because, you know, they, they haven't had this function for two years and, and you know they don't know how the attendance would be and with 21 grandchildren and you've they already chilled. got the place filled uh, you know, <laughs> yeah they knew they could get a pretty good crowd if nobody else came just family just the people on your annual Christmas card huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's going to fill up all the tables but you were excited I know oh, this very, is a big very honor excited. And, and I truly appreciate that they've made me go back and look at the yearbooks and recollect the years that passed so fast through my life. Uh, but we, we had a lot going on in my four years of college. Um, you know, we just had a fantastic football season, record setting. Well, the record they broke was set by our football team in 1970. Oh. Um, led by my... George. Um, Ham, George Cusel, my Hamilton Cusel. classmate. He was beloved, I know. Um, we, we had a Miss America. You did? Judy Ford. Judy Ford was um, on the trampoline team. Coach Hennessy had a world-class trampoline team, and she came down here to um, be on the trampoline team. And um, she competed in Miss America and won, and her talent that for the Miss America pageant was the trampoline. Hmm. And the funniest thing was they put it on the stage, and they had the trampoline, but they didn't realize how high she would go. So the cameras, you, said, you know, all of a sudden you lose her, and She's then she come back into sight. <laughs> Looking good, though, the well, whole time. And, and, and you come to the gala, you'll see a picture of Judy with my parents. Um, but Donald Walters and Bobby Neely were teammates of hers. They were classmates of mine in Lafayette High. Mm -hmm. And they would, they would perform at halftime during the basketball games. My palms would sweat. I mean, what they did on that trampoline made my palms sweat. That's so cool. Those memories, huh? It's like yesterday. Well, not till they made me go back and look yeah. it up. But still, there's nothing like college days. Yeah, and, and then the basketball. Oh, you yeah, know, that we, was a heyday also. Oh, Sports Illustrated said that USL was the only team in the country that had a chance to beat Bill Walton coached by John Wood on a 72-game win streak that had won 10 national titles out the last 11 years, that we were the only team in the wow. country that could beat them. And we had so so much talent. That was and, Coach and Burl Shipley. Shipley yeah. and Tom Cox, you mm -hmm. know. And other Tom Cox, yeah. Yes, and, and, and Tom Cox still lives in town. He, he owns the state forum. And, He's and an his, active and his, member. And his, his grandson is a quarterback at University of Nevada mm -hmm. in Reno. So, as you know, I have a second home in Lake Tahoe. 
So I keep up his, with his son yeah. and grandson in the fall at the University of Nevada. That's a great family, yeah. What a cool time. I didn't realize that. So I'm hoping a lot of your your classmates and friends are going to be joining you at the um, at the gala. Well, I've reached out to my fellow SA brothers, and I've mm-hmm. reached out to my Hamilton classmates, and, you know. Yep, it's going to be fun. I understand there's a silent auction also. Um, there's a silent auction and there's a live auction. So it's a fundraiser to boot and, for And the live auction, we're going to put up an offer for two tickets to the Masters on oh. Saturday and Sunday with lodging. Wow. And there's not two tickets just to the Masters. It's to Berkman's Place, which is part of Augusta National. For, for that day that you're there, you will be like, part of the membership of the Masters. This is a building that is built specifically for the Masters tournament. It hosts five restaurants. It's got, it replicates three putting greens are there, um, and you pay for nothing. I mean, when you eat, you pay for nothing. You drink, mm-hmm. you pay for nothing. Um, you're greeted by the members. So, you know, I have pictures of my wife and I with Condoleezza Rice. You know, she greeted us for two years. We became friends. Mm-hmm. Renee was encouraged to run for president. I wish she had. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's a very, very special um, environment nice. that yeah. you would never get the experience. So it's going to be a live auction. We I've had conversation today with the Alumni Association on the best way to conduct that. Um, we're debating between just the outright bidding or mm-hmm. saying, okay, we're going to offer 50 tickets, $1,000 a ticket. You buy a ticket, then we're going to draw the winner goes. Oh, man. So right. I'm going to depend on them to guide me the best yeah. way to raise money for the university. Well, they know what they're doing. So, well, Herb, I'm so honored to have had you here. Is there anything you wanted to get in that I didn't ask about? We'll have to do um, podcast number two on the, <laughs> the glory yeah. days, you know, of no, um, baseball. No, I'm just grateful that um, I live long enough to be here to see the university where it is today, to see the growth provided by TJO. And um, we got a bright future. Yeah, we do. And you do too. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm looking at all you've done and are doing, and I know that there's more. I have no doubt that you're going to find more interests that might be related to beer or something somehow. But I want to thank you for all you've done for our community and for your friendship personally. I, I appreciate you, Herb. Thank you. Thank you, Jed. And I'd like to thank our listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Um, Please consider subscribing. You can go anywhere you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and you can subscribe to Discover Lafayette. And I'd like to thank our sponsors who make our show possible. Oxner, Lafayette General, Home Bank, Facet, an executive coaching service, and of course, Raider, and in particular, Jason Sikora, who mixes our tape. I'm grateful to all of you for your support. On behalf of Discover Lafayette, I'm Jan Swift.